Andrew Rodham is an internationally renowned epidemiologist. He started his career at the University of Oxford and found his way to GSK, where he was until recently Vice President of Data Strategy. Andrew, in April of 2020, became CEO of Our Future Health, leading the UK's largest ever health research program. Andrew, always great to see you, my friend. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Thanks, Dwayne. Great to see you too. We're just commenting here. We're at the Royal Society of Medicine in central London. It's like a beautiful, <laughs> sunny day. It's the first time in about six months. You know? <laughs> yes, even. <laughs> Our Future Health, what exactly is it and why is it the largest research program ever in the UK? Yeah, it's a, been a journey to go from the world of academia into industry and then leading into government <laughs> sort of NGO style yeah. um, programs. But Our Future Health, the idea for it came about probably six, seven years ago um, when people were starting to think about how do we transform healthcare in the future and particularly recognizing the challenges around an ever growing an aging population and particularly people spending a lot of their later life in levels of chronic disease whether they be easily managed like diabetes and some of the heart conditions that people have or whether some of the much more complicated sort of chronic illnesses that people suffer like dementias alzheimer's and the neurodegenerative ones and really one of the big challenges that was sort of agreed on between the sort of academic community in the uk the um, third sector the re medical research charities and the industry groups was how you study the transition point from healthiness to disease is really, really difficult. Because essentially, your, your hypothesis needs to be, how do I find somebody who looks really well, but within a few weeks or a few months is going to develop some chronic condition? And what can I do in those weeks and months or even years that will intervene on those people and stop them developing it, delay the onset, potentially cure them from it in, in totality? And that was where the idea for Our Future Health came from. So creating a large-scale cohort in the UK, creating one where you, in a simple way, phenotype the people. So don't do anything really complicated because the size prohibits you doing that. But get a little bit of information about people, but sufficient information that allows you to risk profile those people in a sensible way. So whether that's using a little bit of genetics, whether it's using some personal information about their sort of lifestyle and behaviors, whether it's potentially in the future connecting to um, digital devices, so their watches or their apps or other things, which will give you an insight into the individuals, that you can start to look at people who are very high risk, look at things that might be done to them differently, or look at triggers, which might be triggering those high-risk people to go on to, to disease. And that'll be the, the sort of foundation for how you start to think about prevention, early diagnosis, early intervention, and early treatment. And that was where Our Future Health came from. It took a little bit of while for governments to fund and agree all of the, the mechanisms and to bring all of the parties together. But ultimately, it came together as part of the UK's Industrial Strategy Challenge Fund, which comes essentially through UKRI and Innovate UK, and has a partnership really with the medical research charities in the UK and with the pharmaceutical life science diagnostics companies to really build this ambitious cohort. So... We're trying to recruit 5%, uh, 5 million people, so 10% of the UK population or the adult population. Everybody over the age of 18 gets invited to take part, and you can do so by going to the website at ourfuturehealth.org.uk to sign up. Um, and then from there on in, you follow a little journey where you can go through and answer your questionnaire. It takes about half an hour on the website. You then book an appointment to come along to one of the clinics, and we have relationships with Boots, so that there are various Boots stores in the country you can wow, go that's to. Great. There's supermarket, stroke, shopping center areas. So we have trucks which turn up in supermarket car parks, very local to people, so they don't have far to go, and it can be part of their everyday life. And we also have some shops where essentially empty shop fronts in big cities where you can sort of rent them for five to six months to run sort of high throughput clinics. Again, getting to people where they might normally be during the sort of average um, day of the week. And that's essentially it. The sort of consent that we get from the individual during sign-up allows us to link to their healthcare data in the future. It gives us the opportunity to go back to them and ask them for more information, more samples, more data, but also to go back to them and offer them the opportunity to learn something about their health based on the, the um, data that we have or the genetic information that we'll collect about them or things that we might discover in the future that could be of interest to those individuals. I think of 23andMe immediately. Mm -hmm. Is it similar to that? Is that sort of the scope that you're trying to get with the, that level of genetic information? I mean, how much are you collecting? It's 
fairly similar to what 23andMe sort of do. Obviously, 23andMe do it through saliva samples. We're doing it through blood samples. So the the real added value we have over that sort of resource is the blood gets spun down when it arrives at the central lab, and we bank the plasma for the future. So you can go back in many years to come and test lots of things in that sort of stored sample. Are you also collecting then the the blood uh, draw information? You'll- when people turn up um, for their appointment, as well as um, taking sort of a couple of tubes of blood from them, we do their blood pressure, we do cholesterol, we do triglycerides. And so you get an immediate sort of health check um, back to you. So how well are you doing as an individual? And that comes straight back to you and that's available for research. But then the rest of the information or the rest of the blood is actually just stored really pending further use. Um, There's a lot of, we have a small volume of blood from people. It's a couple of tubes. And the more we do now, the less there'll be in the future. So there's a lot of balancing between trying to preserve the information because it's a very valuable sample so that you can make the best of potential future technologies that we don't even know about today. So we're talking 10 million vials is the goal. Yep. essentially you're talking storefronts, you're talking yep. direct mail, you're talking, you know, campaigns here this is a serious budget i mean there's some serious serious investment that's gone into this how much is it public how much is it private i mean what's been the startup mechanism to, to yeah. allow this to happen and frankly entice you out of industry to take it Andrew? <laughs> so the as i sort of alluded to the initial program was funded through the industrial strategy challenge fund which was a sort of specific government vehicle to levy money at very large-scale challenges as part of um, ways of building and creating capabilities in the various sectors in the UK life sciences being one but other sectors which you know were stimulated by government investment so from that money we got a, a sort of grant award of 79 million from um, UK government yeah, so so real money. So real money that yeah. you can actually do real, you know, substantive things on. And part of the condition of that award is that you have to match that at least two to one with money raised through charities and through the life sciences and other industry sectors who will invest in the program. So we've already raised 160 million from life wow. science companies who are investing. There's 16 of them now um, who are part of the program who are investing in building it from the scratch from scratch and being a part of that sort of journey to get us to the the sort of recruitment targets. And we're always sort of looking at, as you can imagine, no program ever sort of can fully appreciate the totality of the budget for the lifetime of the program. This is the sort of seed money to get it going. Sure. But then you have to think about, well, what else do you need? How can you enhance the program? What extra things can be done? And that's a sort of continuing conversation with what's the utility of this to industry to charities to researchers to the nhs to the government um, and thinking about how that plays out in the future you've spent time in academia Mm -hmm. obviously at oxford you then went and worked for gsk i've known you from gsk now for over a decade and now you join an ngo how do you see the strengths and weaknesses of those various changes what do you think is the benefit of an ngo versus working as an academic versus industry well how, how has the transition been I think there's a lot of commonality to them. I know when I, I remember the time I transitioned from being an academic to working for the pharmaceutical sector and people commented that, you know, you lose your ability to do research and you'll never get to publish papers. And actually that was never true. The groups that I managed in industry were very active in research. It happened that your drive for what you were studying was driven by the priorities of the company. But then you might argue as an academic that often the drive for what you're studying is at the whim of the people funding the academic research, so whether that's charities, research councils, etc. I think there's a very big difference in pace and delivery and the ability to ensure what you're doing meets the requirements of the stakeholder you're working for or with. So, you know, the speed we would move in GSK to address certain questions was very different to the speed you'd move as an academic researcher. And it's very different to the world of an NGO where essentially we've been a startup with a very healthy startup pot, but significant sort of effort to get something off the ground, to bring in you know, all of the skill sets that big companies or academic institutes already have, like you know, just basic things like who manages the finances, who does sure. the hiring, who prepares contracts. Um, so it's been a lesson of 
how do you coordinate all of that and in parallel because we started actually just over three years ago so at the beginning of the pandemic oh my God, right in the middle of covid oh my word and how you navigate through what well, we think we could have done that but will we ever really be able to do that again <laughs> so our future health has started you've gone through covid things have obviously it's flourishing well how many patients do you now have authorizing their data use how many subjects do you have in your data pool right now so we've got over 400,000 people we're getting there and they've yeah. consented to join um, and then out of that 400,000 we've already collected blood from 150,000 of them but the 400,000 obviously we've still got consent to link to their records so they can come in in the future to give blood some of them join outside of areas where we have clinics so there's a you know, standard kind of funnel of, you know, that's the first starting point you can send, then you fill in your questionnaire, then you do your blood. Um, so we're getting there, um, and we're currently running at somewhere between 1,500 to 2,000 appointments per day across around 20 to 30 sites in the UK. Um, so it'll take clearly, you know, a number of years to get to the full target, but actually the pace that we've sort of scaled since last October when we really started you know, at a real a high level of recruitment has actually leveled really, really nicely. And we've got a, you know, regular rhythm of recruiting these 15, 16, 1700 people per day and being able to take blood samples from them and store them in the central labs. So what is the overall objective of this? Is it to speed up research broadly? Is it to keep research in the UK? Is it to facilitate R&D? What do you see are the overarching objectives writ large if you think of what we're trying to do is is our future health there's probably two big draws on what you can do with the program so one is there's a whole bunch of data that you can look at and do research on discovery work on um, across a very wide population pool in the uk so you know everyone over the age of 18 all of the demography and social demographic characteristics you might expect to see the other activity is how do you use those people in future research in a, in a sensible way so how do you ask those people to take part in clinical studies of particular interventions how do you monitor what happens or what people do when you give them information about their health do they change their behaviors does something happen differently how do you power the sorts of studies that will change policy decisions in the future so you know if you think of um, screening for cancer or screening for heart disease we often use a fairly blunt instrument of age to decide whether or not someone gets screened yeah partly because it's actually really really simple to implement but it is pretty blunt could you be more effective if you knew something about their risk profile and said it's not just age but it's age and high risk or once you get over a certain age and you're low risk maybe you don't need to screen any further because you've made it through so i think there are lots of questions that can be answered using this sort of program and part of that is to make the UK a really brilliant place to do research. You know, the, the history and one of the reasons for investing in the program originally was the UK has a hugely successful track record of doing large-scale population health, if you think of Biobank, Genomics England, but also, you know, going back to the 1940s and 50s with the British Doctors Study and with, you know, the birth cohorts just post-Second World War. Um, but also the link to the NHS and the potential of the sort of healthcare data in the UK. So having a single payer system, if you like, or a state-run healthcare system where everybody is, you know, essentially monitored from birth to death through the primary care physicians, through the hospitals, and they all have the same sort of identifier that, you know, keeps their records consistent and accessible. That's a real advantage over many countries which have a much more fragmented healthcare system. And more difficult politics, too, as well. I mean, yeah. trying to do this in Germany would be virtually impossible given the regulatory constraints of using personalized data unless they've strictly opted in. For our future health, we are asking for the strict opt-in to get of that, course. which helps. Um, but, you know, compare it to the U.S., where... People, I can't remember what the statistic always was, it was something like average life expectancy in a health plan is three years before as you move between jobs or between yeah. locations. So following someone over time and seeing what happened to you when you were 40 and what happened to you when you were 50 is really, really difficult because the sort of transferability of that information rarely happens as you move from one system to the next. If we look at how this has been implemented, obviously this was put in place as part of the government innovation strategy. So there is 
an innovation element there. The current way to do clinical trials is you more than anyone know. You sort of hire a CRO, you wait for the principal investigator and you let him come through the door and it's, oh, by the way, do you want to join this clinical trial? This allows you to go out into a an existing opted-in pool where you have basic genetic information, you already yep. have a blood draw, and you can say, hey, great, we've got this pond to fish in. So you know where the fish are, as it were, for clinical research. It, have you done any work yet, or are you still just building up the cohort? We're still just building up the cohort, but I think we're talking, you know, as you know, or you might know, James O'Shaughnessy in the UK has been tasked with leading a review of clinical trials. Sure. And we've been talking with him and his review team to sort of say, well, actually, you know, for every type of clinical trial, the sort of historical model is you do it in a hospital. Right. Or occasionally in sort of primary or ambulatory care. What we're doing and what we're showing is you can do these studies in the community in if they have you know, minimal amounts of intervention, so blood draws, you know, potential of the tests. And I think it's a really you know, unique opportunity to say, well, how do you think about clinical trials differently in the future? Do they always have to be fully embedded in care? So at the moment, we're still building the cohort, but we're starting to think through what are the practical things we need to have achieved to enable that sort of research to happen. So yeah, how do we protect the privacy of the individual? Sure. So, you know, you, I invite you to take part in a study. You decide you like, you know, Professor Jones, but you don't like Professor Smith's study and you don't want him to know that you've said no that to it. That darn Professor Smith. <laughs> <laughs> the question I have then, if we look at this situation, are you finding certain characteristics of people who are opting in? Are they certain, are they more educated than else? Are they, do they come from a background where someone in their family is ill or they're concerned about a genetic predisposition? Do you, are you finding any, anything that segments these people who've opted in? It's an interesting question because I think traditionally in research, we often see a very specific or selected subgroup of people who opt into research. When we look across the program to date, there are areas that we know we've got to do some work on to improve the participation rate. So slightly younger people have a lower participation rate, and that's very common in research and very common, particularly in anything to do with health research, because most people under the age of 30 have rarely had a health related issue. So tend to be less likely to take part in something around health. Well, they're going to live forever, Andrew, at that <laughs> 30 years old, of course. <laughs> most of us do. <laughs> um, we also see some of the differences that are typically seen when trying to recruit, you know, different ethnic and um, sociodemographic characteristics. Sure. But actually, we've got, you know, a strong starting point where we're seeing pretty much opt in across all of the groups that we'd want to opt in. We need to improve in some. And we know there's areas where that, that is important to do so. But some of it is actually down to some practical barriers we still need to un unpick. So low socio-demographic groups, people on low incomes or with very intense role uh, jobs can find it very difficult to find the time to go and take part in a clinic, which might be in a town centre and only open in sort of normal working hours. So there's a lot that we're trying to think about how we bring the study to everybody to give it you know, open access to all and to enable people the opportunity to take part. But when we look at the sort of pos the social media sharing that happens afterwards or the sort of volunteer interviews that we do with people who've offered to, to take part, you know, you get a really broad spectrum from people who are medics have often sort of come stepped forward and commented about how this is really important for the future of healthcare and how it can transform healthcare. We've had people from professions pretty much every profession that you can think of is, is sort of laid out a positive story. We have people who reflect on having a relative or a friend or sure. a neighbor who's been suffering a particular condition. They want to do their bit to help. You have people who just want to find out and are curious and want to find out more about themselves in the future or wanted to get a you know health check and they felt it was a less health-related thing to go along and join a research study than it was to go to your doctor and ask for help. So if we look at this in the context of innovation broadly, you know, roughly 20 years ago, Europe had 55% of global innovation. If you look at, you know, the biopharma sector was a, a European sector, as it were. It's down now around 20, 25%. There's been a huge drop off. Why do you think this has occurred? Um, I think it's not one particular factor that's driven the change. I think the world globally has seen changes in where sectors are located, you know, so you know, life sciences has sort of balanced around a little bit from, as you say, from Europe, but it's gone to a number of other countries. The technology sector is another one where sure. we've seen sort of up and down changes. Sometimes it's purely the centralization, decentralization of how companies 
set themselves up. There's the question of availability of capital and how easy it is to leverage capital, particularly in the smaller spin-out startup venture spaces, private equity spaces, where in some areas of the world that leverage is slightly easier than in others. And you know, there's you know, work ongoing I'm aware of in the UK to try to address that from a sort of UK perspective to you know, really get beyond just the seed Series A into what is Series B and what is Series C, where you're really talking about you know significant amounts of investment in the life sciences space, um, and sometimes it's just you know a kind of correlation between where some of the investment in the university sector is going, because largely a lot of the innovation in you know life science often spins out from the universities with some great brilliant ideas which turn into small startups and then they leverage that capital and move forward. So I'm not sure there's one particular thing that's sort of driven the UK, Europe to drive down that number. I think there's a lot of factors at play um, and including the sort of growth of some of the, the markets and areas of the world globally that you know, really weren't even playing in life sciences probably 15, 20 years ago. How much of this is data access to? I mean, the fact that as you alluded to earlier in the US, uh, they can put all that data together, anonymize it. I can go in and look for an orphan indication, say, look, you know, it's a micro orphan, one in a million. Oh yeah, we've got data on 40 people. You can't do that kind of work here. Do you think that's a competitive disadvantage for Europe right now? I think there's a lot of potential for data in the future, but I don't think it's the drive for purely why people cite the innovation in certain areas. It accelerates some things in the US and in other countries. But if you go to the UK, you know, probably the single biggest worldwide resource in the sort of pharmaceutical industry for the past 20, 30 years has been access to CPRD or GPRD for sort of the ability to look, monitor drugs, surveillance, clinical understanding, and that's been available globally. So I'm not sure, it's not always the data and the location because it's how you can access it and the technology to do so. And that's actually got much, much less parochial and much more globally accessible as the world's opened up with technology space. I do think there are ways that when you start to think about clinical trials and how we execute and deliver on those, that data has a real role to play. But Although there's small-scale examples of where that really works well, I think there's a long, long road to go sure. to see that in true sort of, you know, large-scale impact. And, you know, you and I have talked about this on many, many occasions <laughs> over the years. There are lots of brilliant examples of where it can be hugely effective. And it can actually be transformative, whether it's in the regulatory context or in the sort of commercial, you know, pricing, um, negotiations and yeah, how technology, effectiveness, effectiveness. Absolutely. You know, what does it actually look like when you really put the drug out in the marketplace? Not what does it look like in the you know, phase two, phase three trials where you have a very small number of people who end up taking it. But there's a, you know, that's still got a lot of translation to kind of get to the world of being able to see that as a routine for the assessment of medicines, for devices. And I think even greater opportunities now are you know, medical technologies, health technologies that are you know, really digitally focused and how they have an impact on people because they're very different to giving someone a medicine. Oh, absolutely. And the whole BYOD, bring your own device, yeah. you know, philosophy that's creeping in. I think that could be transformative, potentially. Yeah, agreed. It's a very interesting, and I think it's how you use the devices to motivate people in ways which join together with the sort of more traditional approaches of medicine. So, you know, whether that's reminders to take pills or sure. um, coaching apps which help you lose weight, exercise, whatever they are training your mind to you know stimulate you every day there's there's really exciting sort of opportunities out there that people are looking at now and i think that's going to you know how that plays a role in mainstream clinical practice in the future is going to be really exciting to watch the economist had that infamous cover article four years ago that said data is the new oil china with you know 1.4 billion people where even if you're a one in a million person there's 1400 people exactly <laughs> like you you know the reality is there's enormous data assets coming to bear right now particularly in asia certainly the us even though the us fundamentally is smaller than europe the data access is enormous i've always said that the nhs potentially is the largest reservoir of longitudinal data in the world fundamentally as you pointed out you don't have this situation where you you can't go from one hs to nhs2 or nhs4 yeah. nhs squared 
layered or cubed. I mean, the fact is you're in the NHS from you know birth to graves, essentially. Thank you, William Beveridge. That's fine. But the practical reality is legislatively and regulatorily, it is difficult to use, particularly when you start looking at the GDPR in Europe, which doesn't allow open, unfettered access without a direct hard opt-in. Obviously, you're trying to get around that. What do you think needs to happen practically in order to regulatorily get around these barriers? Well, I think there's lots of opportunities. So, you know, clearly going to people and asking them to opt in. Which is, is what you do. By far yeah. the, the best possible way. But I think there's a lot to do around, you know, when you talk to people, when you talk to the public and you, know, you look in the UK, things like understanding patient data sort of 10, 15 years ago started to, you know, have those public conversations. And we've seen the data come together as a result of that. The sort of if you'd lead with purpose of why the data needs to be aggregated, collected, used by whoever it ends up being, you know, the purpose is the thing which drives people to not complain about and not be worried about that use case. And that's really the sort of fundamental. It's having that conversation so that people understand why data is being brought together or why it's being accessed or why it's being used in certain purposes. And quite often when you talk to people on the street who are you know, potentially just patients of the, the service, they would expect their data to be used to improve their healthcare because they would expect their doctor to be doing the best possible thing to improve that. So I think there's a lot which is really, you know, the technology is there now to allow you to aggregate, integrate and use lots of data from you know, a whole host of different sources. Every Pretty much every industry out there uses data in some way, shape or form to manage itself. <laughs> in some ways we don't want. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, that's by far the easiest problem to solve. The harder problem is, is you know, really having the conversation with the public and making sure the regulatory frameworks that are in place give you the right levels of protection and the right levels of transparency and the right levels of understanding that, you know, people want in the in being, a, being able to trust the person who's aggregating that data. And that's, I think, is the most important thing. It's getting that transparency and getting that trust and building and maintaining it. And, you know, there are some great examples you know as i said cprd is a primary care database has been around pretty much since i started my career in yeah, one it was, form or another as you, as you said when it was gdp with general practice yeah, yeah exactly and you know they've done a you know there's been an amazing amount of research that's come out of that over the years and with minimal amounts of sort of you know any concern or questions about that being an appropriate use of the primary care data to power health research in the future it obviously just gets, I think, for everybody naturally, as you kind of alluded to, the more and more data that comes together about you, the more and more nervous you get about the fact that there's more and more data about you. So if I knew all of your banking and your travel and your gym and your shopping and your healthcare, is that too much to put into one place? And why do I need to know all of those pieces? So I think there's a lot to do with talking to the public, building trust, and then maintaining that over time for a particular purpose. And I think that's you know, the regulatory framework then just needs to fit around that to give the level of protection, trust, security, and consequences that if anything is broken in that process, that the appropriate consequences are held. Does Brexit provide an opportunity for the UK to go their own way, sort of a middle way, which often happens in the UK, somewhere between, you know, we continentals in the US and uh, the Europeans on the other side of the pond, as it were? Well, the UK now is no longer in the sort of same regulatory framework necessarily or follows does not necessarily have to follow the same regulatory context as Europe as it did with the sort of European frameworks previously. So I think it's got an opportunity to think, you know, what is it that was right? Are there things that it wants to do slightly differently? And, you know, we're already seeing that with the MHRA is now stand separate from the regulatory context of regulating devices and medicines, you know, separate from EMA, separate from FDA but probably lining up very closely to leverage where best practices already exist. You know, I think there's a real opportunity for the UK to define on a whole host of you know, legal and regulatory and policy issues what it wants to be without having the same levels of control or constraint or inference, influence of, of being a part of a bigger sort of regulatory framework mechanism. So there's a lot of opportunities, but I think there's also a chance to sort of look back and say, well, what is it that the rest of the world is doing that is actually already really good so right. that we shouldn't try and step away from it just because we're not in a particular political or regional block of countries. 
if we look at some of the opportunities here as well, and obviously my bias is you know the biopharma ecosystem, the research driven. That's our work. I mean, that's your background as well. Mm. But if we look at the possibility for prevention, you're getting perspective data sets with retrospective ability. You can look back longitudinally now as you collect this and you have the ability to sort of get predictive analytics on what will happen, as you mentioned earlier. What is the possibility to start leveraging this for prevention? And that obviously can be a slippery slope because that gets into, you have a genetic indication, do you tell them or not, some of these sort of moral quandaries in many ways. The way I think about this is, and I think the way we have to think about this very practically is, you know, prevention is ultimately the holy grail. What we would love to do is prevent everyone from getting ill from any disease during the course of their life and, you know, create immortality. That's clearly not the way we're going to go. But where we are today is that most people still get diagnosed pretty late in the disease process and have, you know, pretty horrible consequences as a result of that. And dementias are by far the best example of what doesn't work in terms of diagnosis and treatment and outcomes. So we typically diagnose people when they already show clinical symptoms of dementia and probably there is little that can be done to really reverse that process. There can certainly be some aspects where you can delay further the progression. But what about if you could get to those people a year before they started to show the true clinical signs of depression when they're still preclinical symptoms? Or if you got them two years before and prevented the onset by many years? And so I think it's, it's taking that, where are we today? Trying to step back that diagnosis and or high risk prediction intervention to prevent the onset and then step it, you know, and that then naturally progresses back to thinking about, well, what is prevention? Because there are, you know, a huge amount of questions that need to be answered if you say, I should use this genetic marker to test for or include in a risk predictor of, of, a, you know, of a particular disease or a condition. Because what about all of the extra people who get diagnosed? Do you really want to implement it? How sensible is it? How do you do the genetic test? How do you sure. get everyone to take part? There's a lot of really operationally practical implementation. And then you've got to look at the trade-off for what you actually get in return. Because if you haven't got a very sensitive marker, you won't find many people who truly you're preventing from getting the disease. It could be a a pretty non-specific sort of predictor. So I think there's a lot that still needs to be done, but really it's starting off with saying, if we can just start to pull back that diagnosis window a little by little and start to intervene earlier and earlier, that will ultimately lead to people living a better health for longer because they'll be able to have more effective use of the treatments that are already available today at a time point which actually might make an even greater difference than what we see where they're getting used at the moment. Is there a desire to bring in family history and prediction based upon genetic yeah. markers by family? Yeah, so we ask, um, as part of the sort of lifestyle questionnaire at baseline, we ask people um, information about their family history, information about you know, what relatives have died of particular conditions. But also I think it's important to say what we're trying to do with genetics is sort of moving away from that more classical monogenic inheritable characteristic. What we're looking at is the plethora of markers for common chronic diseases, which might be thousands of potential individual gene changes, which on their own are completely insignificant, are completely um, ineffective in terms of individually doing something. But when you add them all together, you can then say, well, actually, so it's much more like a risk score, like saying you're old. You know, being old is pretty bad for most diseases. You yeah. tend to get them later in life. And that's what these genetic markers are looking at. It's not so much that you've carried them from your parents. It's that you've accumulated 10,000 of them, and collectively those 10,000 give you a high risk or a low risk, conversely. So if we look at your partners in the project... Obviously, you have company partners. I would assume that there's a desire there to do clinical research and clinical development. The MHRA, the UK's FDA, as it were, announced this month several changes to the UK-specific clinical trial regulation, parallel ethics committee review, faster application time reviews, etc., all the sort of things you would expect if Mm. you're trying to go faster. Great. ABPI, the British uh, pharmaceutical industry representative here in the UK, recently published a report that found over a 40% decline in UK-based clinical trials from the period of 2017 to today, which is quite striking, actually. Do you think the MHRA review does enough? And how do you think you folks can help this? So I think the MHRA review does what it needs to in the regulator's sort of space. But I think clinical trials aren't purely just the MHRA's 
purview is a whole sure. ecosystem of healthcare that needs to come together to deliver a trial. And so I think what the MHR has done is really look at the regulatory side of it and say, well, what is it that we can really do? What have we learned from COVID, I think, largely as well? to really think about streamlining process and building out a you know a fit for purpose or a future proofed sort of uh, regulatory framework but i sort of mentioned earlier you know lord james Shaughnessy has been commissioned to look at a review clinical trials to address this very issue and you know i think it's not just the regulatory piece it's also the how do you use data better and how can you use data in a more effective way and this is where our future health steps in potentially and plays Pot a big yeah. big part potentially yeah exactly and then how do you use you know trials done in different contexts so taking them away from hospitals is hospitals always the right answer or can you think about more effective remote decentralized approaches to trials in the future well the hospital manager would think so <laughs> well <laughs> they would billables but, <laughs> but equally the hospitals are you know really struggling to deal with the capacity they've sure. they've sort of backlog that the uk you know not unlike pretty much every healthcare system around the world is dealing with post-covid there's a huge sort of catch-up plan and how you fit research in amongst the sort of you know routine clinical care you have for your patients is pretty challenging it's a very difficult balancing act in hospitals at the moment and this comes to the sort of focus now on decentralized clinical trials using the byod the bring your yep. own device approach and we're seeing more and more of this obviously robert mcclellan the former uh, fda director in duke university is leading this in europe we've had you know trials at home a very large yep. and so far quite successful imi project that may actually be delivering results shocking you yep. know there may be something really there that may be a way to go. And again, you guys could play a, a big yep. role in that. Having that connectivity to the individual, using digital technologies, whatever they are, to have maintain that relationship with people. Having people use devices. You know, I think in COVID in the UK, we saw the virtual wards for the first time. You know, people being monitored at home and then being brought back in. There's lots of great examples. Um, I remember one from a few years ago when I was doing some work with the Cystic Fibrosis Trust where they were funding some research on giving you know people at home uh, i think it was oxypulse monitors plus um using thermometers to take temperature every day as a monitor for potential infection risk that might be sort of bubbling around in them and again you know being able to use that data prospectively and show that you know they were getting five to seven day advance warning of a potential onset of an infection and that's really important in the sort of cf community where if you can prevent that progressing from a simple infection to a complex one you can keep those people out of hospital you can keep them out of itu beds um so the yeah you know, i think the opportunity to think differently about healthcare and the use of device remote monitoring better connectivity the healthcare data generally is a way of sort of following and monitoring people over time that's got to be the way that we think opportunistically about how we you know really improve the efficiency of, of trials and research in the future if we look at, you know, again, I hate to dwell on it, but let's look at Brexit a little bit and, and what happened. One of the reasons why I and many of us used to spend a lot of time here in the UK was the European Medicines Agency was here. And there was a lot of interplay between the EMA and MHRA and NICE and a lot of the UK folks, such as yourself. The UK took an, an over, I wouldn't say oversized role, but they took a large role in development of clinical practice, et cetera. Is it a problem that, that you know, EMA is not here anymore? And what about those skills gaps? There's a huge sort of academic community in the UK who are really focused on the use of healthcare data. And you know, if you take the work that Andrew Morris has pulled together with Health Data Research UK sure. and many others, you know, there's a huge opportunity to think about how the healthcare data is put to best use. And although the EMA were clearly from a kind of pan-European regulatory perspective, really important to think through, you know, what are the challenges of, you know, licensing a product in Europe and giving that sort of common approval. I think having the MHRA still here and the MHRA thinking, you know, really hard about how the UK becomes, how the regulatory framework in the UK evolves and how it takes advantage of, you know, learnings from COVID, the data assets that it's got available, uh, the ability to do research in a potentially different way in the UK to other countries because of the NHS record, because of things like our future health that might exist. You know, I don't think you'll see a big downturn in that type of research. I think there's just, it'll probably be focused more by the MHRA and, and NICE, but 
to be fair, when committees and research bodies that I've sat over the years, they've been the sort of leading voices in, you know, bringing forward issues that, how do you do comparative effectiveness? What is it? What are the challenges in assessing it? How do you do it with different sort of proxy controls in, in, in analysis? And the same with the MHRA. They were the ones who brought sure. forward a lot of the regulatory questions because quite often they filtered, you know, they're the same whether you're in UK, Europe, US, Japan, Australia. The, the question you get asked by the regulator is nearly always the same. <laughs> it has the same sort of foundational technology challenge against it or um, data challenge. So you don't think there's a skills gap emerging here because of the loss of the regulator? You think it's going to be covered by the skills that you have on site? Largely the skills gap is the same pretty much in any country you go to, which is data science is a ever-growing, more important skill, and there are never enough data scientists as a whole and then there are even less data scientists who are really experienced in healthcare data. I think that's where we have the biggest skills gap, but I'm not sure it's any better if you go to the US or France or Germany or Australia. Do you think AI is going to, is it highfalutin language that might not be terribly practical? I mean, is it just how much is this is hype and how much is reality at this point? Um, I think it's an interesting question. I, you know, it's gone through a lot of hype cycles, but equally it develop, it delivers a lot of really useful things now. Sure. So, you know, if you take AI applied to image analytics, we're in a space where AI can read images often faster and with a higher degree of accuracy than the human eye can. And that's, you know, really valuable in healthcare. Clearly at the moment, there's a huge amount of interest in large language models and generative AI. I think you know, clearly it'll find its role in the future. And there's a lot of work, you know, if you've even just over the past week, I've seen the articles from Microsoft, from Google, with the sort of work they're doing in healthcare. There's a lot still to do there, but the, the potential is huge. The you know, potential's so huge. How you go through, you know, on the whole in medicine, still the majority of the true content of the information is not in the coded data in medical records. It's in the unstructured data the doctors and nurses write. And how you can kind of use better technology to be able to extract features from that to truly understand the patients is, you know, it's one of those holy grails we've been chasing for many, many years, you know, and potentially AI has an opportunity to help with that. I remember when Watson, you know, IBM's Watson won Jeopardy and then won Mastermind and everyone's thinking, wow, this is going to be the next big thing. <laughs> and then, but it failed. It didn't win cancer. <laughs> no, the doctors won. <laughs> Yeah, it it was it, it just showed, and you, know, you and I have discussed this on numerous occasions. You know, you take a hundred and fifty cohort in cancer, and you get a hundred and fifty different pathways. There's no two patients that are the same in oncology. It's fiendishly difficult. And the other side of it is, you know, ultimately these are models. You have sure. to train model on something, and it is much much easier now if you think of the corpus of data that exists on the internet and beyond that you can train LLMs on, you know, some of the routine things that we see ChatGPT doing, you know, the write me an essay to give me a business plan and it'll happily, you know, produce you something which actually looks really good when you read it. There's much less in healthcare and that's the real gap is the sort of, what do you train all of these models on for some of these healthcare related applications? Because as you said, the patients are all very different. They all go through different outcomes. None of them necessarily look the same. What's the gold standard for training of reading medical notes? You know, if you ever worked with medics, you know that how they annotate their notes oh. is incredibly unique to each individual <laughs> medic. Is this even English? <laughs> but if the thing's got to be able to go into, read, extract, and feature characterize that, that's, you know, that's a really hard problem for it to actually solve without the sort of gold standard training sets at the volume that we have in the sort of more, I wouldn't call them easier, but in the areas where ChatGPT probably is performing really, really well. But you're also hearing about some of the experiments that people are doing trying to make the chat GPT neurotic and insane and they're succeeding. <laughs> I was reading some last night. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one was asking, you know, said, I love you and asking him to divorce his wife. And things like, I mean, this is getting into hell 9,000 territory, you know? <laughs> yeah. There's somewhere to go, I think for healthcare though. <laughs> Just a bit. <laughs> Speaking of data leaks and all these things, data access, Politico two months ago, released a leaked document of the European pharmaceutical regulation as it's proposed. They're talking about cutting two years of data protection and then giving some back if you are able to release in all 27 member states. 
if we're looking at this from a practical standpoint, and I'm asking you to put your GSK hat back on here, is it even feasible or even advisable to release in all 27 member states in two years for an oncology product that maybe half of the health ministers don't even want? Is this going to be workable? It's a very good question. I think you could ask an easier question of, is it sensible to release in 27 <laughs> countries a vaccine against a highly infectious agent in parallel? And, you know, that clearly worked. And it worked incredibly well, even though the rollout was slightly different. The rollout was in months. Clearly, there's all sorts of challenges when you start to think about launching medical products, um, not least of which, you know, what are the standards of care? You know, even between countries or even within a country, there isn't necessarily a single consistent standard of care because the patients differ, the types of people that you see differ, the medical practice differs, the, you know, the whole bunch of reasons. So I think you just have to think really, really carefully about you know, what are you achieving by doing that? But I also think the other side of it is how many products take more than two years to get to market across all of the countries. You know, you have a the new medicine which is actually working and treating people and saving lives or extending life or removing sort of chronic burden of symptoms. Potentially the bigger barrier is is less on the pharma side and more on the sort of healthcare systems on adoption and how you you know, implement new things because, you know, it's really challenging for countries to keep adding things to formulary, getting doctors to use them and, and a whole bunch of sort of, you know, pure implementation issues. We've seen this with numerous effective um, oncology products that are orphan therapies. As of 2016, there was a 200% difference in available oncology products in the US and Europe. I mean, I'm fully aware of several orphan products for genetic-based biomarker indications where they're only available in half of the EU. So it's not the fact that they're not effective. Many of these are extremely effective, yet many countries don't cover them because of cost or access or, or internal decisions. I have this vision of you've managed to finagle your way through a product into 26 of the 27 member states, and you're sitting in front of the Slovenian or Maltese health ministers, this big neon sign that says no behind him, and he's got his finger on a button saying, go ahead, ask. <laughs> you know, I mean, that's going to be a very yeah. difficult deal if someone knows that they're standing between you and an extra two years of sales in Germany or France. Yeah, and that's the sort of political regulatory nightmare scenario that the you know, a lot of regulation sort of often comes up against. And it's there are very good reasons why you can see that being a really good system to think about how you release and how you kind of, you know, encourage adoption, encourage utilization every country. There are often unintended consequences and unintended incentivization or de-incentivization about why it becomes a good system. And you just have to, you ultimately have to protect against that. Where do you think this ends up? I would expect there to be a lot of changes from whatever a draft policy is in, you know, all of my years of being involved in policy work or advocacy work on either the industry or the academic side. Drafts often regularly change from, until you see the final version, it's, you know, very hard to assume that whatever's in a current iteration is going to be the final issue. The UK sits at something of a crossroads. It can go several different directions. Where do you think the UK healthcare system is going to be in 24 months? Which path do you think it's going to choose? Um, well, I think you've seen the signaling of the intent on you know, life sciences as a big player in the UK. It always has been. Historically, it's grown numerous you know, small and large companies um, based in the UK. So there's a clear view that you know, the UK can be highly competitive on life sciences. Again, you can go back to COVID and vaccinations. You know, the vaccine being discovered within X days in Oxford, commercialised and built into a you know high-end product at AstraZeneca, and then distributed over millions and millions of doses around the world really, really rapidly. So there's a huge potential, I think, to continue to invest there. And I think there is a question of what's the right sort of investments that become really attractive to the industry? Is it cell and gene therapies? Is it RNA-based therapies in the future? How do you use the data assets, as we've been talking about, to the best possible advantage for patients, but ultimately in terms of developing new medicines and interventions? And I think if you think of the healthcare system as a whole, I think if you you know, read any of the politics in the UK, pretty much the, you know, the consistent words that you get from the sort of health policy world is, prevention, earlier detection, earlier intervention, 
you know is that sort of how we use that against with the public in the best possible way you know it's you can't really do that much more with the system if you people turn up who are sick they need to be treated and we do that really well what really is important is trying to stop those people getting there in the first place and the only way you can do that is through more effective screening earlier diagnosis interventions which prevent onset or delay onset or remove some of the symptom burden of, of individuals and that I think is going to be the sort of forefront in a couple of years time is how we use those all of the technology so it's not just pills and it's not just vaccines it's the diagnostics it's the improving the sort of risk management of people it's the sort of taking advantage of some of these emergent technologies in how you sort of put people into high and low risk groups and treat them appropriately rather than you know using that one size fits all so being much more precision based but around public health rather than precision based around the sort of therapeutic outcomes which is where you know oncology has been so wonderfully successful in the past few years that requires an enormous paradigm shift of the entire health system. Does our future health have the support of the health ministry, the government, the academic institutions, your alma mater, Oxford? Is everyone aligned on that? Well, so I think one thing to say is it doesn't necessarily require a huge shift of the healthcare system. The healthcare system will still be there in its exact sure. same form in the future, treating the sick people. What it requires is a sort of new concept around prevention and a new way to think about prevention which may not always be delivery through your primary care physician it may be and we already see this now you know getting blood pressure checks done on the high street so you can go to boots and boots and lloyds and superdrug will do blood pressure and potentially you know start you on medicines if appropriate before handing you on to the doctors the use of you know british heart foundation doing a partnership with tesco's to offer free health checks to people in store so i think the movement is there to start to see how the healthcare system adapts to the future and starts to bring healthcare outside of maybe the more traditional houses of of how it was delivered into bringing it to the community in a much much more proactive way and that does have the support of you know ministers on both sides of of the house current government but also the sort of opposition who really do support the sort of idea that you know we do need to change this and it's not as i say it's not radical it's about just bringing extra and thinking about prevention as a different thing prevention isn't just healthcare delivered in a different way it really is a different approach and that requires sort of use of different ways of interacting with the population to be able to deliver that and making more use of sort of much more things in the community and much more things close to people Andrew Rodham, CEO of Our Future Health. Andrew, always a pleasure speaking to you, sir. Thank you, Ryan. Great to see you. Great to see you, too. The executive producer of the Vital Health Podcast is Dwayne Schultes. Our editor is Mark Brodeen. Our project manager is Gwen O'Loughlin. The Vital Health Podcast is a production of Vital Transformation, LLC, copyright 2023.